Hi, this is Paul. Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, Episode 7. Today, Amelia, Donna, Ken, and I will be talking to an old friend of Arconnect, Killian Riano. Uh, Killian has been involved in an initiative called the Architecture Lobby, which lobbies for the value of architecture in the eye of the public, as well as for the value of architecture within the discipline. In other words, the Architecture Lobby is fighting to ensure that both clients and employers understand the value of design and offer fair payment for it. Uh, on a lighter note, we'll also be discussing the recent New York Times interview with Kareem Rashid. His comment that architecture is relatively easy compared to product design has ruffled a few feathers in the comments section. So we will discuss that in greater detail. This week, I'd like to remind everybody in the beginning that we can be followed on Twitter and Facebook. If you have any comments about the podcast or any suggestions of of stories to talk about or people to reach out to. We love to get your feedback. Uh, you can send it to us at Arconnect on Twitter with hashtag Arconnect Sessions. Also, we have a call-in line that we have opened up for up to two-minute uh, messages that that we invite you to call in and send us, leave us a message. The, uh, the number is area code 213. 784-7421. Uh, we can also be followed on Facebook. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to uh, review the podcast and uh, give us a rating on iTunes. Um, that would be amazing. So how was everybody's week? Amelia? Good. It's going good. I spent uh, my weekend elbow deep in paint, redoing our kitchen. So that was a lot of fun. And uh, pretty much ate up the entire time. So I'm, yeah, just slowly getting back into the week. What color? Ultra pure white. Ooh. I'm not even sure if that is a color so much as like a state of being. <laughs> <laughs> um, or just the base for every other color that exists. Um, but it is it is what we needed. Um, it's helping the light. And it is so satisfying to see that immediate transformation from one color to the next. Sounds a little racist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it does. Um, I wish I could contact Bear uh, Paint and tell them exactly like the implications that their paint swatches <laughs> are giving out to the world, but is a vast improvement from the interior color of every other 80s era at Los Angeles apartment complex, which is just cream, like a dirty cream and uh, a color called bisque, which I don't know how to describe other than the word bisque. Bisque. Um, <laughs> bisque, yeah. Particle board, bisque, and cream lacquered paint. Wow. But yeah. White is, white is all colors, right? So technically, optically speaking, yes. Mm -hmm. So it's not racist at all. Thank you, Donna. It's you're as welcome <laughs> as any. Absolutely pure means you're as welcome to every color as every other color. So that's a much. See, I, Donna, I can always rely on you to take a, a much healthier, more refreshing perspective on things like this. Adult so, perspective. Donna's going to be my PR agent for the rest of this podcast. Yeah. Cool. I try. Yeah. What about you, Paul? What did you get up to this weekend? I actually I was in Palm Springs this weekend and I checked out the new um, architecture museum which was really great. I was actually, uh, it, it's the, the first show is on, um, E Stuart Williams, who actually designed the, the building that the museum is housed in. Uh, it was originally a bank and it, it it's mostly about his work. It also touches on some of, uh, Frey's work that there was a six minute, uh, documentary on the, on the Frey house, which is one of my favorite small little projects, uh, residential projects in the world. 
the uh, the models and the drawings were all really nicely presented. I was really surprised at, at how talented of, of an artist uh, E. Stuart Williams was as well. And just the, uh, you know, I, I wasn't aware of the, uh, his entire body of work that uh, I was really just taken aback by. So there's actually a book that, that they were selling at the, at the museum that is not yet available in wide release, but, um, but it will be coming out. I, I suggest taking a look at it. It was a really nice book. And if you're, in, if you're in Palm Springs, definitely check out the museum. Cool. Ken, what have, what have, uh, what have you been up to this week? Um, went to uh, see a comedy show on Friday. Um, I entered it. I was in a chili competition on Saturday. A chili competition? How'd your chili do? Uh, oh, not like eating chilies. No, but... making chili. I make a. I make a. Making, um, oh, I'll show the recipe if you like. It's a. Um, yes. <laughs> it's a tequila habanero chili that I make. A, a vegan chili. Oh, wow. Yeah. Sounds great. It was. Uh, it's really good. And the problem with entering this particular chili competition is when you put down tequila habanero chili. People are immediately scared away, so they don't try it. So I didn't win the spiciest chili primarily because I don't have a lot of friends around here. So they don't come. The friends I do have don't come to support support my effort at making, you know, spending $30 on chili and three hours making it. Um, and then I've got the cowards in the audience who don't want to try my chili. So they don't know what spicy is. <laughs> but I almost got into a fight with a, with a bunch of... Uh, uh, firefighters because i thought their chili was pretty pretty tasteless and uh so that was fun oh. <laughs> no i'm kidding i'm kidding i could take well, out any I hope you don't have a fire at your house anytime soon <laughs> yeah seriously <laughs> they did give me two smoke detectors i have to check and make sure that they actually work <laughs> um they're not no and then yesterday i had the i the tremendous pride in in reverting to my old uh 20 year old self fixing my own car. And I swore I was never going to fix a computer controlled car, but there was just no way I wanted to pay $400, four or $500 to have somebody fix the blower motor so I can actually have heat. So I found the instructions, pulled the glove box out, pulled out the blower motor, found one yesterday. And now I have heat in my car and it doesn't make noise. So the particular, there's something very you know, you feel a good sense, a sense of pride. And I posted it yesterday. I was hoping that Donna would share this sense of pride with her husband. He's very hands-on. And, and uh, I was very, very happy with that moment. I had a, there was a, I had a moment um, years ago, it was right after 9-11 actually, that my mother-in-law had a car and something on it stopped working and we lifted the hood and our good friend, David Rubin looked under the hood and it was, everything was sort of sleek and enclosed. And he said, you know, everything about this industrial design of this engine says you don't belong here. Like you don't belong in here fixing and tinkering and messing with this thing. And that's been a real touchstone of industrial design for me ever since. A friend of mine also just recently, my friend Laura, just posted a picture of the thermostat she was removing from her 125-year-old house and the Nest thermostat that she just bought. And the Nest is just completely closed. Like you can't get in there at all. But the old thermostat has solder joints. You could fix it yourself. Yeah. You could go in there and mess with it. I think that's a really common aspect of our current industrial design. So good for you, Ken, getting in there and getting your hands yeah. dirty, even though the car companies say, oh, you don't belong in here. <laughs> yeah, so that's kind of um, – and now I start my new job this week. So it's particularly interesting week. Woo-hoo, yeah. Cool. So that's up with me. How about Donna? How about Donna? Uh, I have not done much architecture this week. 
<laughs> um, I had a very social weekend, but part of it ended in um, uh, my husband and I watched a movie called Cutie and the Boxer. I don't know if any oh, of you guys yeah. have seen this. Mm-hmm. It was a d- nominated for an Academy Award for documentary, and it's a it's a really beautiful personal story about um, an eighty something year old Japanese American artist named Ushio Shinohara and his wife Noriko, and they've been married for forty some years, and they both still make art. And it was very touching and um, a, a part of, very beautifully filmed and and um, very personal. But the the thing that kind of struck me was Yushio, who is the boxer in the the title. He makes painting. He makes action paintings by boxing by dipping boxing gloves in paint and then punching the canvases. So it's very much a 1960s, very masculine action art world that he is still living within. And um, they live in Brooklyn, you know, the scenes of them in New York, it just all felt very nostalgic for a time of the New York art world that doesn't exist anymore. And um, I I wonder frequently how much our romanticism of people like Jackson Pollock and Rauschenberg and, and how much our romanticizing of those people in that era still affects how we think about artists these days. But it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. I I highly recommend it. Cutie and the Boxer. The wife is cutie and she does beautiful illustrations with ink and watercolor. Oh, that sounds really cool. And a very interesting topic to bring up just also in terms of architectural history. Yeah. I, you know, I think um, this, this whole notion of the, the sort of, you know, the Howard Rourke, the singular artist struggling against the odds of a world that doesn't understand his work. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a trope that it needs to die. I think. <laughs> here, here. How did you watch it? Was it on Netflix or did you get it on disc? We got a Netflix delivery. It was, I don't know if it streams or not. Oh, good to know. That's added to my list. Yeah. Really, really a good one. Yeah. Excellent. Well, should we get Killian on the line? Yeah, yeah. Let's do it. All right. So we're here talking today with Killian Riano, who is here to discuss the, his role in the architecture lobby, as well as what's going on with the lobby and who they are and what role they're playing in this whole conversation about student debt and proper reimbursement and just how the profession itself of architecture is being valued at this point in time. So Killian, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Um, maybe... You could start out just by telling us a little bit about how the architecture lobby first got started and how you became involved in it initially. Uh, the architecture lobby is really the, 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 a project that was started by Peggy Deemer, a professor at Yale and an architect. And Peggy be, uh, began to come together with a, a series of students. And I actually believe that it started, it, it grew out of some interest that started in the classroom, especially when she was working in uh, Architecture and Capitalism and other books. Uh, And one of the first things that this group of of young professionals and some not-so-young professionals and academics uh, began to do is put together a survey. Uh, This survey was sent to over 240 people uh, in which we were asking basically questions about how content people are with their career paths as of right now. After a while, and I, I actually, uh, Peggy and I t- talked together at the Architecture and Capitalism uh, launch for the book. And uh, we've been working ever since on the architecture lobby. And uh, with the two of us, there has been over 40 people. So it's a large collaborative, and it's really a collaborative of people. Uh, some of them uh, firm owners, some of them employees, some of them students, some of them faculty, uh, both uh, part-time and full-time, so adjuncts uh, and even tenure. 
Uh, and everybody's just discussing this moment in time where it feels like there's a structural uh, issue about the way design is valued, the way we are paid, and uh, how much we can begin to enjoy our lives or not. Uh, all of us are working together. Killian, how have uh, how's the architecture lobby been able to uh, recruit these 40 people? And how do you work? Do you work centralized or remotely? Uh, do people come to the lobby uh, or do you do you seek people out? Uh, it's a little bit of all, all over, right? It's friends. It's uh, people that we talk to and are interested. We're beginning to do what we call architecture sessions uh, in which we go out. Uh, we just did one in Boston and have conversations with professionals. And then some of them, uh, actually quite a few of them, join the lobby. Uh, right now we're working actually using a system called Clip. <laughs> glip.com it's just a, basically a management software and w all we do is have conversations in there uh, we have a series of groups and let me just share with you specifically what the groups are we have uh, groups around research uh, and our research committee is looking into historical aspects of labor uh, and we're also into the the why how the profession has gotten to the place it is we have an academic committee looking at students and young professionals just coming out of school. Uh, we have a, a protest committee and, and, and a media committee, which both of them, which I, I hope uh, be the point of contact of. Uh, and then we have also a, uh, a survey committee, so a group that is taking a look at, at, at the work we've been producing. So in regards particularly to the protest committee, that sounds like a pretty inflammatory committee. Um, and it strikes me that the architect, that the, um, the architecture lobby is already, uh, kind of a, um, I wouldn't say an anti-institution, but something that is born out of the idea that things need to change, that things are not good in the way that they currently are. So what are the, some of those protests that have been leveraged by the lobby? Uh, we have been doing a series of almost performance-like protests, uh, starting in Venice, uh, at the Venice Biennale, uh, where we read our uh, demands for precarious workers, uh, 10 points in which we were talking about how the current state of labor. And uh, then we went to Chicago. So if you go to our website and you go under Chicago Committee, you, would see, you will see video. And, and what's interesting about that one is that we almost got arrested. Uh, so the protest committee... Almost. Almost. Peggy and I got escorted out of the building. Uh, and actually on the way out, the, the, the people that escorted us out were giving us advice on how to unionize, how to create an actual union. It was really interesting. So we were being escorted out. And actually, as we were being escorted out, and basically just for doing the 10 points... And uh, they were telling us, well, you guys are professionals. You should begin to link up with the, with the carpenters and with the masons, uh, you know, the masonry workers. So it was really interesting because they, they were all very pro-union. They just couldn't uh, allow the type of um, kind of public reading that we were doing. What we're told is that there's special uh, freedom of speech rules around convention centers and it's settled law. But regardless, what's been interesting is that those, through those protests and those actions, 
uh, we've been able to just call people's attention to a series of issues. And also, we're doing something that the AIA can't. Many times, we, we began to almost jokingly say that we can play the bad cop to the AIA's good cop. We're not standing against the AIA and all those organizations. We understand what their position is, but then we are trying to play another role. So, Killian, I want to, I really love this term precarious workers. And that's how I first came to hear about you guys and what you were doing was through this, this use of the banner that said, we are precarious workers. And you mentioned that these, um, people who escorted you out were also talking to you about unions and other, other unions. I feel like in my life, everyone I know right now who is stressed out, they are stressed out because they feel precarious. That's just the state of how everyone is right now since the recession. Everyone still feels very nervous. I'm wondering if you guys have reached out to these other professions and other, other groups to see if anyone else is, you know, is willing to join in. Uh, not quite yet. It's actually something that we're, you know, always thinking about creating solidarities with other groups. Uh, uh, the only th the only groups of people we talk to is actually artists. Uh, there's an, an artist here in New York City that has been doing a similar set of surveys about MFAs and the value they add to the an artist uh, kind of career. And so we talked to them and just, you know, outside of that, uh, this weekend there was a digital labor conference that we were interested in. Uh, and we generally, like you're saying, uh, many other designers and design fields are having this conversation. So if some of the students, for example, I don't teach architecture anymore. I teach something else called design and urban ecologies. And my students are actually, some of them uh, have been interested in some of these issues. So we see the value in beginning to really uh, go out and, and talk to people outside of it. Although right now we're, we're, we're first talking to our own family, and then we're going to go out and make solidarities so we can uh, actually talk to architects better. So Killian, I guess the, am I correct in saying that the, the main objective with the architecture lobby is to basically increase the value, the perceived value of architecture, both within the, the public, as well as within the, the people in the industry that employ others? Yes, that's exactly so, it. So what are some of the strategies that you have either already applied or are planning on applying to to do that? Uh, I think one of the things that we've been doing is actually putting out information. So uh, some of, our, again, the survey that we put out and to, uh, to ask questions about that information that we are producing. In the survey, uh, we, we began to talk about what people are doing with their weekend right now. So one of the first things where we notice is that there's a lack of information and data about what we all make, what we all owe in student debt, that there's a whole series of pieces of data that need to be get out. So the first thing we've been doing is uh, information. The second thing is just basically establishing the conversation, the conversation such as this, the conversation that Peggy and I held at Boston, thanks to the Circus for Construction folks out there at MIT and Harvard. And the, the third thing is to begin to do the research about really what can we do? What is the what is possible? Uh, meaning that we have the Supreme Court case that hasn't made, made it illegal to unionize and to come together as professional architects. If that's the case, what else can we do? Killian, what I what I really liked is the um, my, my big criticism of the AIA is that they're only representing their members. That by and large, if you're not like you noted in like it's noted in the uh, architecture lobby piece, that if you are not registered and you're not a member of the AIA, effectively the AIA doesn't represent you. 
And they had that ad a few years ago. I distinctly remember this, where they said, you know, they basically said to the the broader population uh, in the United States that hire an AIA architect. And a lot of people who weren't AIA were pretty pissed off around that effort to say, wait a second, you're marginalizing me because I'm not part of your membership and you're making people think that AIA is the ultimate licensing body. So when you talk about the idea of being the bad cop, how, I mean, isn't part of being a bad cop is kind of just asking for, or not asking for, but demanding that, you know, get rid of the AIA. I mean, can that, is that is that a bad cop move or is a bad cop move saying, you know, uh, until something gets done around student student loan debt, students just stop paying your debt altogether, everyone, or just graduates, just stop paying your loan debt altogether. Those are like big moves um, that could push an issue. What do you think about that? Uh, I mean, you know, and, and personally and, and all that, I totally agree with you. I think that, for example... But I think this goes back to the last question, which is then about creating larger solidarities. The, the reality is that, for example, the IA right now, uh, even for whatever they represent, they do they do have create a structure and have a certain amount uh, of power that um, we could be strategically using. And has the uh, people have in the past successfully pushed it? So, for example, there was a group in the '60s called the Architectural Resistance (TAR). And they kind of occupied the, the, the AIA convention of, I believe it was 1969. And some changes, some tangible changes came out of it. And, and I agree with you that one of the things that AIA right now needs to do is figure out that one of the things that's killing the profession is that it's kind of a profession, <laughs> that it needs to begin to loosen up and take on the new practices and all these things. And similarly, with the student uh, debt issue, I, I think that is one of the extremely most important things, uh, is one of the things that uh, keeps students, like, you know, I myself have quite a bit of student loans still to pay off. And uh, you have to ask yourself certain really intense questions about the types of the type of work you're going to take on, the type of practice you're going to have, uh, how much are you going to actually be able to deal with even some of these political questions? Can you? Can you not? And I think in this this one specifically, the student debt one is one in which we need to make large. We need to have a real consciousness of ourselves as political agents. Architects sometimes don't really have that. Uh, you know, not, 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 not a lot of us are going to be at the top and making all the money and, and our education costs a lot of money. Uh, we need to start asking the question about the cost of that investment. Is it worth it? But beyond that, we need to start making alliances. Uh, I mean, one of my favorite groups right now is Strike That, uh, started by artists right after Occupy Wall Street and has really been organizing around the issue probably more successfully than anyone else. Because they also then, by bringing people together, they're doing both things like maybe coming for strikes, but a strike only works if literally everyone participates or a, a, a chunk of people that's big enough that it's going to be filmed. Or, uh, and on the other hand, they've been doing things like buying up debt uh, uh, that, to, to liberate people, as they would say. So basically, to do either one of them, it seems like what we need to do is to begin to organize. If we're going to have an alternative to AI, we need to begin to organize the, the people that would create that alternative. Maybe the people with untraditional practices, the people, the, the non-licensed people that are going to be able to do that. And maybe uh, find solidarity with other gra with graphic designers or landscape architects, with other groups 
that uh, actually could take into it. And the same thing with the student debt. We need to begin to find other groups of people that are gonna that are gonna be with us as we take on that fight. So Killian, besides almost getting arrested in Venice, in Chicago. Oh, in Chicago. Sorry. Uh, have you guys encountered any other? forms of resistance to to this? I mean, you know, these are the things you hear, right? It's like, you're just not working hard enough. It's just, it's just a bunch of group, it's a group of people just complaining. So the resistance there in Chicago was very straightforward. And, and even though even many, there were even AIA uh, keynotes that were on our sides and, and, and are in solidarity with us. In that case, it was just kind of the structural, you know, the, the, the convention center can't allow certain things to happen. But uh, we're very glad that it happened. Uh, we're glad that it went the way it went. But besides that, I think that one of the biggest things is that architects can be extremely difficult to, to organize, uh, which then puts the onus on us, right? We need to broaden the organization. We want to bring uh, firm owners to discuss the issues they're facing, the employees to face it, the tenure faculty, again, the adjuncts, the students. That means that a lot of us can begin to create the solidarities that are needed. So, but but to be to answer the question more straightforwardly, what I, I have heard is not really quite structural. For example, the AIA and other uh, and other institutions have actually approached us to try to to talk to us and try to work with us, and nothing has come out of yet, of that yet of those efforts. But really, I think one of the, the, the biggest kind of backlashes is actually individual architects that basically come and say, "You just need to work a little bit harder. You can." Uh, you can become the next star or something, or, or that we're complaining. And I think that that would be one of the biggest issues, that it's actually the individual, and in architecture especially, uh, which means that we both need to be very, uh, to be able to have a larger conversation. Uh, but it also means that, that some of us are going to have to begin to see ourselves as not, uh, you know, the, the geniuses, et cetera, but rather as uh, workers, laborers, whose, va- whose labor actually has value and we can fight for. So, Killian, um, I guess going back to my question of resistance, one thing that I, I'm wondering is, you know, you're, you're based in New York and, I mean, you are, I don't, not necessarily the lobby. You know, there, there are a lot of firms that we all know that are either not paying their employees or they're not paying their employees fairly. I mean, has the architecture lobby's mission been discussed with the owners of these firms? Uh, if so, what has their response been? Uh, not quite yet. We do have a project right now on the works in which uh, we're going to, uh, the, the, the architecture lobby pledge. And the architecture lobby pledge will actually give young practitioners the tools in their hands about the type, the average kind of salary for their position is going to give them the, the amount of money that you actually, uh, the, you know, the average money that a, an architect uh, owes and how much they will make. And then it's going to ask them uh, that they should really try to not take a job if it's not within a certain area. Again, this is not to collude, <laughs> It's not to say that all architects need to come together and set a fixed price, but rather it's about sharing information that we don't usually have. And the second part of that pledge is going to be for for the actual practices, where we're going to ask them to adhere to a series of items that are going to improve the labor conditions for the entire profession. And then we want to highlight those professionals in our website and other places, basically 
to begin to, uh, there's the opposite. You know, we, we've debated the, the wall of shame versus the wall of fame kind of aspects of it. What we want to do is reach out to some of those practices, the practices that use the unpaid intern, et cetera, which, you know, straightforwardly legal, right? Unless they're getting academic credit or something. So if that's just an illegal act, right? So we need to be basically need to begin to share what is within reason, what are the things that a lot of us are going through, and what are the typical uh, kind of the typical salaries and other types of conversation that we should be expecting, and hopefully uh, we can adhere to that. And and I actually hope that also that pledge is gonna, like I said is going to begin to go to young practitioners that have their own practice. It were, you know, one of the issues that came up at our Boston event, which was really interesting, is cultural labor. That these days, cultural institutions, which have their own, you know, again, they're not evil or anything, but they have their own sets of, uh, of financial concerns. There's a lot of asking for work that doesn't always pay. So I think that we need to also be aware of that, that uh, the cultural and other type of institutions and that all our time is valuable and that uh, basically we all need to to be paid for what we do. Well, because this problem is kind of a top-down uh, problem, you know, starting with the you know, developers and clients that, that don't respect the value of architects. Um, are, is there a type of pledge that you are going to propose to clients and, and developers and people that hire architects? Or is that more of a pledge that, that an architect would take in order to take a stand against those types of clients? We've talked about what you're saying, Paul, and we think it's a great idea. We actually even talked about for doing things like that highlight that uh, architectural labor sometimes is hidden, like that most people don't really understand the entire teams that, that were used to build a building. So to go out and actually kind of highlight, this is the entire group that designed this building X or Y around Manhattan. So yes, I, I think you're totally right. I, and again, it, it goes back to the, the structural kind of aspect of this. Uh, as much as yeah, employees need to take a pledge, the owners need to get, take a pledge, and you're right, we need to really educate our own clients uh, and to, uh, to have them understand about the amount of labor that goes into making this, uh, the, the things they're asking for uh, and what uh, fair payments for those are. Q, one quick thing. Um, a lot of what was just discussed was focused on employers and, and that side. But what about um, students in school and the, um, you know, the ridiculous pressures that they face by pulling three straight all-nighters in a row and, and all of the effort that goes into that? Is there anything that Architecture Lobby can do or is doing around that or thinking around that, engaging with schools? Uh, right now, actually, yes. Yeah, studio culture is one of the bigger things. It becomes really important. And actually, uh, right now, one of the most exciting things that's happening within the lobby is that the student, we're beginning a series of student chapters, uh, student-led. Uh, basically, right now and a few days ago, uh, a lot of students came together. And this is one of the issues that they want to tackle. They want to tackle uh, uh, and the, the issues around labor and their future careers, as we've been discussing. But also even what's happening right now within academia, what type of uh, curriculum is being taught? What are, like you're saying, what are the, the, the things that are being expected out of students? And, and, you know, quite honestly, I find this conversation really, even really interesting. Recently, uh, I got a, a, an opportunity with actually Peggy Deemer, Ron Schiffman and Cassis Varnellis 
to have a conversation, uh, almost reacting to a transcript of 1969, the AI convention, in which people were discussing very similar issues all around a, a student a student strike at Pratt, where they were discussing these type of issues. Actually, one of the points of the things that students were striking for was because they didn't know where their tuition was entirely going, <laughs> so that there were fees being charged and they didn't know where they were going. So uh, yeah, I think it's always important to see this, these, this both as a struggle, and this is something that I wish architects see, saw the sem- themselves a little bit more as, like we're struggling together, and, and things that quite honestly, I'm not sure we're going to solve them tomorrow. We're just going to make a step towards, as long as we get people con- having the conversation. But the student issue is very, very important, and, uh, and we are, we, what the architecture lobby is doing is having students themselves organize and talk about both together many institutions across the country and then specifically within the institution uh, the the issues that affect them that they want to organize around. So what type of a short of participating in kind of a student bureau as part of this um, what actions can just perhaps people outside of the architecture community is there any uh, way for them or avenues for them to support the cause? I don't know. I, I don't. I'm not entirely sure. Like uh, outside of the, the architecture committee, like whom? Oh, just maybe within like some of the interested parties we were discussing previously, like performing those partnerships. Um, other like with other creative industries or cultural industries. For right now, just kind of contact us and we can figure it out. You know, we don't have anything. We don't have anything strictly slated for that. But although, yeah, right now what we have done, like I said, is share information with similar groups in other creative fields. So basically that is the sharing. And hopefully we can begin to create larger solidarities, which is what we're really interested in doing. Uh, like I said, we've done it with artists. Like you guys have mentioned, there are so many people that are going through this. Uh, I, I think that it all, you know, with organizing, it always has to start at home. And then you can be, uh, basically, I think the best thing a graphic designer can do for the cause right now is to organize other graphic designers for industrial designers, to organize other industrial designers, and then to come to us with the, I don't, I'm not sure if the pun would work as well, uh, the, the industrial lobby, the industrial I don't know. I don't know what punt that would work with, but you know, whatever it is, and then we can all work together. And 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 the thing is that right now, even the, the ideas of unionizing and labor and all this are also beginning to be used. Uh, and there's some interesting critiques of the current organizing mood. Uh, uh, um, um, how much does it bring people together to struggle together for certain issues? Uh, understanding that in this case is a large structural problem. Uh, and how much do they just kind of uh, keep us all happy with the precarity? So maybe give us a little bit of health care, maybe, you know, like, which is one of the critiques of some of the, the current unions that are trying to work with their freelancers and others. I, I think that they're trying to do the best they can right now. But the question is, how can we help to organize to actually have a larger conversation about these issues? Well, there's a lot more to talk about regarding the architecture lobby, and we're definitely going to be right there with you guys as you evolve the organization. Before we wrap up, I'd like to just say that, you know, your your website is at architecture-lobby.org, and you also have a Twitter feed at, uh, at arc underscore lobby. Are those the two best 
ways for people to get in touch with you, especially for our listeners that want to get involved? They are. They are. The, uh, you can also email us at info at architecture-lobby.org. And that those are the best ways to get a, to get through it to us. Yeah, if you add us on Twitter, uh, we'll be very good about having that conversation. We want that we want the architecture lobby again to be uh, a real kind of place for both just discussion, having these larger discussions, and we look forward to hearing more from people from Arconnect. Uh, obviously, a community that I've been a part of for a very long time, and a, a community that I've always appreciated because. It allows the space to have these type of discussions. Uh, so I, I look forward to having a discussion with people from Arconnect and, of course, outside of it, too. But yeah, Great. Well, we look forward to continuing the conversation with you guys uh, on Arconnect and uh, hopefully again in the podcast soon. So thanks a lot for joining us today, Killian. My pleasure, Paul. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Killian. Thanks. It's great talking to you. So the New York Times recently published an interview that um, they did with the industrial designer Kareem Rashid, who's most likely known for, if not immediately pictured in a bright pink suit, um, then peddling different kinds of very colorful, um, almost cartoon-like industrial design products. And the course of the interview was to focus on a few of Kareem's recent building projects that he's now kind of segued his work into building spaces and building buildings. And the scope of the art of the interview is very much about how he got into that and how as an explicitly not licensed architect, he kind of noodled his way into doing that and beginning and how he's working with other architects to get his projects done. In the course of the interview, it becomes pretty apparent that there's kind of a little bit of sourness being directed towards him about how he's considering the architecture profession. At times, he refers to architecture as much more simplistic than something like industrial design, which is his current official profession, what he has a degree in. And there's just a lot of kind of this attitude of, oh, well, architecture is something that I can easily do and isn't all that difficult. And so we've been getting a lot of comments in to this interview and to the article about how architects are a little bit frustrated that people feel that they can maybe come in and make these kind of claims about the profession writ large and uh, what it means for someone like Kareem, who is a pretty well-known um, industrial designer, to make these statements publicly and how it reflects on the profession in general. So Donna or Ken, maybe one of you can start out and describe. So how do you feel about being implicated that Kareem is noodling in on your profession? Wow. Um, That's a loaded question, obviously. <laughs> I have to say, I really, I've never really found him very palatable. I think I've really never uh, been attracted by his designs. I've been more attracted by his personality. So he's really done a very good job of being, um, if I may say, the media um, uh, whore that he is. Um, kind of, He's very good at self-promoting. But I think he does make a good point about where you know, where industrial design does have some relevancy in terms of, you know, the, on the anthropomorphic level, but um, that doesn't mean you can design buildings. Uh, you know, I, I, that would be like, well, architects, you know, have a have an understanding about how, you know, steel is put into a bridge, and we certainly don't do a hell of a lot of bridge design. Um, that's usually left to um, other disciplines. I mean, not that we, I'm sure there's, you know, some there's Calatrava who's had some, but he's a structural engineer. So um, I think it's it's really problematic for me to, to consider his opinion as even remotely even uh, valid or having any kind of sustaining value in terms of my profession. Because it, what product designers do, they are all about planned obsolescence. 
the, the product you have in your hand today will be outdated in two years. So they really have nothing other than the things that you can put on a shelf in a museum to say, well, there's my, there's, there's my value. It sits on a shelf. And I did that a long time ago, but ultimately it's the object that we hold. It has an obsolescence already built into it. It's got a, you know, like I said last week, it has a two-year contract and I'm on to the next one. Architecture has to stand not only for, uh, you know, for a, a long duration, it has, it has many more constituencies that are much more important than whether or not I can hold this object in my hand. So that's kind of where I'm really kind of um, at odds with this particular individual. You know, whenever I hear anybody say that something is is easy, it just makes me feel like what they're really saying is that they don't really care that much about it. Because, I mean, you know, his comment kind of made me think back to the documentary uh, Hero Dreams of Sushi. I don't know if you guys have seen that. But it's, you know, it's about this guy, this old man now. I mean, I think he's... 90 years old or something, but he's devoted his entire life to making sushi. And in the movie, he, he uh, admits that he's far from mastering this, this art that he has devoted his entire life to doing, you know, and this is because he, he's passionate about this and he realizes that perfection is unattainable. And so when Kareem makes a comment like that, it makes me feel like, you know, he's, he's devoted his life to his own things, you know, industrial design being one of them, uh, marketing being another and architecture is just kind of a you know, a little side project that he's working on right now. You know, I remember hearing when I was in, when I was in, I think when I was still in grad school, so a long time ago, that the only place left for architects to do work anymore is churches and mausoleums, that basically everything in society is becoming so disposable. And I mean, I think, I think it's true. I think there are so many buildings that really are intended to only last a short time. They're seen as investments. And once the investment is done and they've been sold to the first you know, buyer, they don't have value anymore. I, I had a career for a short while in Portland, Oregon, doing theme restaurant interiors. And those were intended to be you know, very trendy and of the moment for a few years. And then they would get revamped and done all over again. So maybe it's true now that churches and mausoleums are the only place to to really do architecture that lasts. Although even churches these days now with um, mega churches that don't want to use the traditional iconography and whatnot of crosses and, and heavy stone, they're trying to be much more friendly and shopping mall-like. Um, you know, even maybe it's only mausoleums. Maybe that's the only thing left that we get to design that is intended to last forever. Well, most of the churches that I see in Los Angeles are just in strip malls next to Radio Shack. Right, exactly. They're butler buildings, yeah. more or less. Do you guys think that he really means what he said? Or do you think that this is just another, I mean, it obviously got everybody's attention. You know, I mean, the, the, uh, the article was probably read by 10 times more people than would have read it if he didn't make such a kind of an inflammatory comment like that. Well, what does it say about the people that he, that work for him that actually are the ones who are on the hook for the buildings? I mean, you got to work with this. This guy has to work with these people. He doesn't, he doesn't fully understand. He probably hires a lot of these professionals, these architects of record, or if he has them on staff. And they're primarily saying to him, well, here are the code issues. And he doesn't really care about the code issues. All he cares about is the, you know, the, the, the stuff that we all um, care about when we're, you know, dreaming about great architecture in school is doing the cool things. But the cool things have to get built. And he doesn't have any hand in that stuff. So I kind of tying this in with... With, uh, you know, talking what we've talked about with Q before, I can imagine he is an absolute dick to work for because he doesn't fully comprehend the process. 
And it's not just the, the design process, it's the construction process. It's dealing with, he is the face of, of a firm and that's all he effectively is. He's become the suit for his brand. So, you know, the people who actually get, you know, whose feet are hitting the pavement and actually doing the real work have got to loathe the working for this character. It's just, it's, it's baffling. Dick of the week. Exactly. <laughs> Last week it was uh, Ted Cruz. Yeah, Ted Cruz. No, I think, you know, I, I mean, I, I to go to your question, Paul, I think that he certainly says things to be flamboyant. He wears glasses to be flamboyant. He says, pink, I'm trying to masculinize pink again because he's trying to be, he's trying to get in the public eye. And that's what you do. You say these, make these big statements. You say, I am a whore like Philip Johnson. And, you know, you get press. No, you know, all press is good press, right? But despite it being an outrageous statement, I, I would tend to agree with him that designing a, a cell phone is probably more challenging. I mean, designing one like from the ground up, not tweaks, but really starting and, and making something that's an entirely new phone product is probably more challenging than doing a strip mall. I mean, strip malls are just kind of, like you said, they're easy because you don't have to care much about them. But if you did care about a strip mall, it, it would be, I mean, it's, it's really all relative. You know, designing the iPhone took a lot more effort than designing, you know, the $25 off contract, whatever. It just seems like, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's relative. Absolutely. I think also uh, his role in this whole project is not specifically, I think him calling himself an architect is a little bit kind of grasping at straws, not just in the case of how he's um, actually working, but in this certain case and the buildings that are being discussed for the projects that he's involved in, in this particular interview, he's working on a few HAP projects, which might be HAP, I'm not sure, which is a development project in East Harlem. And so East Harlem, this HAP has a specific relationship with Kareem to design these particular projects, multiple projects, the ones he references in the interview. And if you go through and look at the actual images, you know, the, it's obviously, Kareem's influence is obvious if you know, if you're familiar with the rest of his work, but you're never going to say, oh, that's a Kareem space or like, there. The, it's very clear, at least from what I can see of like these press images is that the stamp is a marketing stamp. It's to put Kareem's name on these things, on these buildings that are not particularly like garish. There's, they've been described as a little bit kind of out there, maybe not blending in perfectly. But I think this is just kind of a very well, or maybe not so well thought out, but a pretty explicit just case of of partnering with a name and kind of both the d development company and also Kareem kind of going back and forth and working on this project together that Kareem's face gets to go on. And that whatever team of architects are, are employed that are the architects of record may be doing the legwork, but what's going in is, or what's getting this project uh, interest is Kareem. So I, I wanted to also ask you guys kind of what you were thinking about how this reflects on the whole idea of architectural authorship. Because, you know, are the other architects working on this going to then say, oh, I worked on the Kareem project? Or <laughs> what, how are they going to refer to this? How, what type of agency and what type of authorship is invoked in a project like this? I don't think it's any different than working for, you know, I mean, if you just look at it in that perspective, how is, it's not really too much different than saying you worked on, a, on a, an OMA project. I mean, yeah, it carries more uh, uh, weight within our within our industry, um, but that doesn't carry a whole lot of weight with people outside of the industry. Where this kind of carries weight with people outside of the industry, and it doesn't carry a whole lot of weight with people inside the industry. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like it's something that we would scoff at, but that most people would say, "Ooh, Kareem Rashid was involved with this. Cool, <laughs> you know." <laughs> 
Well, it, it, this what I liken this to is when like Harley Davidson teams up with Ford, or when uh, Carroll Shelby teamed up with Dodge. You're you're essentially validating validating something by lending your name to it. And this is kind of no more than I don't think it's anything more than that. These are these buildings going to be going in. The, um, is Kareem going to win a Pritzker? Likely not. Obviously <laughs> not. Is he going to get published in architectural record? Most certainly. I mean, and and to and he's going to get published at other publications that'll cross over into other areas. But short of that, it really has no real relevancy other than to marginalize design professionals. Again, you know, if we will work for the lowest common denominator in in our profession, and I'm not suggesting that Kareem is one of them, but he certainly does approach the idea that he doesn't value what it is we do as professionals because he makes it seem like it's so easy to do. And yeah, is it easy to design a strip mall? That's our failing. And maybe this will actually hopefully bring some, you know, lift the profession up a little bit and saying, you know, get our backs a little bit stiffer instead of being weak and being, you know, uh, this kind of press for me does more to kind of make me a little bit more rigid about what it is I actually do. And in terms of like taking pride and ownership, that I'm a fucking architect. And I took a lot, you know, I had to go to school five years. I had to, you know, labor in, 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 uh, in the, in the business to get a license. And this guy just comes out of school. And he maybe he has a graduate degree. I don't know. But he gets to design cool stuff and he gets to go and these fancy Hollywood parties. And you know what? I get to design spaces for people that rather want to be in them. And he gets to design a cell phone that gets thrown out in the landfill in two years. <laughs> or in his fancy garbage cans. <laughs> Pretty colorful. You could throw the cell phone into one of his garbage cans. Yes. Then it has, you know, <laughs> exactly. And judging from some of the work I've seen, I think that's probably where most of his cell phones wind up anyway. I mean, I, I think it's, we're damned if we do, damned if we don't, right? I mean, I, I think that when Brad Pitt starts talking about architecture, it makes other people who don't think about architecture start thinking about it. And that's cool. And it's good for all of us. But then if we try to market ourselves too much or try to sort of catch this wave of a trend, then all of that hard work that we've done and the seriousness that those of us who are registered, who, who, who the, the seriousness with which we take our work, sort of, it, it seems like it's a compromise. So, uh, you know, I, I think um, if Kareem is making more people think about notions of design, like, hey, this is a, this building is designed in an interesting way. And that makes me happier when I walk to work every day versus this building that's very boring, you know, that can only be good for us. But when it's a matter of just slapping on some pretty colors at the end of the day and not really having an understanding of how spatial quality, materials, all of the, the very significant aspects of architecture, how that improves your daily life, that's where we can't seem to sell our value. Yeah. And, and making a statement like architecture is easy, you know, in the New York Times is kind of doing exactly the opposite of what Killian was talking about what they're trying to accomplish in the, exactly. with the architecture lobby. Yeah. Well, I think both Donna and, and Paul referring back to Killian's conversation, that kind of hones in on a very specific distinction about how architects value architecture and how people who are not architects value architecture. And I'd like to read a bit, um, if I may, from the Kareem Manifesto off of Kareem's website. Wait, is that one word? That is one word. It is a pan- oh. portmanteau between Kareem and Manifesto. <laughs> um 
I wish I'd made that up. So I'm, I'm skimming a little bit through it, but here is a short quotation from it. Design has been the cultural shaper of our world from the start. We have designed systems, cities, and commodities. We have addressed the world's problems. Now design is not about solving problems, but about a rigorous beautification of our built <laughs> environments. Design is about the betterment of our lives poetically, aesthetically, experientially, sensorially, and emotionally. My real desire is to see people live in the modus of our time, to participate in the contemporary world, and to release themselves from nostalgia, antiquated traditions, old rituals, kitsch, and the meaningless. So just from that basic statement from a few sentences off the Kareem Manifesto, it's clear that Kareem's focus here in designing the space isn't really even designing the space, which I would presume is kind of the basic tenet of an architectural focus is not, am I going to beautify this aesthetic thing? No, it's to actually start from the, from the spatial sensory experience of the thing. So I think there's a real difference in just pure perspective that is not built solely out of whatever his publicist told him to say in this scenario, uh, from him being an industrial designer and the kind of values that go into de designing something like the iPhone 6 or any better version of something that already exists and may not functionally change, but still experientially changes, um, that his, per his perspective is just very much skewed from what most people commenting on that interview from their perspectives. He's, he, so he's saying that we've solved all the problems. Yeah, I think, I think that was, let me find it again. It says, um, we have addressed the world's problems. That is one, that is one sentence. Yeah. So that article that came out today saying that one in 30 children in the United States is homeless, that's, that's solved. So now we can just make things pretty. It says it's been addressed. <laughs> it's been addressed. Yes. <laughs> well, thank goodness that it's been addressed. Maybe not to the same resolution I would have liked it to have been, but uh, if Kareem's happy, I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> but no, this, this goes back to the strip mall conversation, I think, is like, you know, um, there's a way to take a strip mall and then decide that, okay, the problem has been solved, which is, you know, creating, say, commerce in a, in a city. Put a strip mall there, problem solved, right? And then we just beauty up the strip mall, put some flashy colors on it, put some, you know, nice uh, Corinthian columns on either end. Great. <laughs> and, and then you have all this other host of problems that come with that, obviously, and there's many other implications of that. But to a certain aesthetic and to a certain population, that problem has been solved. Exactly. Um, so I think that it's this kind of a similar perspective going on here. I'm sorry, is it Karimafesto or Karimanifesto? Well, see, I don't know how to pronounce it. I think it's got to be Karimafesto. Kareem, well, there, well, you're skipping a syllable there. So it's Karimanifesto, okay? which makes it <laughs> difficult to decide which stress, which syllable should be stressed. But um, for the sake of of uh, <laughs> for the sake of this podcast, we can do it however which we, way, way we want. Well, obviously, man needs to be focused on. And written in pink. <laughs> it is written in it pink. It is written, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't get too heated up about the fact that he calls himself an architect. That doesn't bother me. You know, he's a designer. He is, clearly. Um, I get more upset with the notion that people would think that, that, yeah, that making something pink and pretty and and fun and approachable that your garbage can is pretty means that you're not thinking about the fact that you're throwing away tons and tons of waste and destroying the planet in doing so. You know, I think that we have to, if we need these fun, engaging approaches to design to make people think about serious problems that design can solve, then great. But um, if we're just glossing over those serious problems, that's a, that's, yeah, that's a bigger problem. Well, is he, uh, is his work then a, like, um, 
uh, a duck then uh, to if, put it in the architectural parlance of that he's he's a 21st century um venturi scott brown where he's they're thinking about decorating the shed and that's what he's doing is that is that kind of what i mean that's when i think about his manifesto i think about you know the decorated shed and oh well he's just prettying prettying up something that you know does that solve the problem in his mind i don't know if that makes any sense but I see him more fitting into the like Kardashian uh. camp, um, <laughs> you know, rather than because I think, you know, the, the whole duck versus shed issue involves a lot more meaning mm-hmm. than uh, than what I what, what it's apparent in his work. Yeah. Well, I mean, he's not the first one. I mean, you know, I when we started thinking about this and he started calling himself an architect, I immediately went to and I it was immediately my first thought was Vito Acconci. He's the first person that I remember seeing as a, a you know well-established artist actually working in architecture. But what was interesting about his his pieces, at least early on, they were very much in the kind of Jimenez lie kind of where there were these kind of whimsical explorations, and they didn't really it was hard to call them architecture because they really were just they were sculptural, but they had an architectural component. So it was very interesting to me um, to think about Vito Acconci and I. So to me, if we have artists, we have designers, we have lots of people doing interesting architecture, doing interesting buildings, as long as we can talk about them in um, in ways that are are considered and critical of the the things that we should be critical of. That's fine. I don't care who does a building if it gets out there and makes a conversation that then can lead to some cultural improvement, you know, something that um, that we all can can discuss and um that that adds to the conversation well i think the the one thing you know when i'm thinking about that adding to the conversation and going back to the impermanence of his what he tends to deal with and the permanence of architecture i know you you talked about you know churches and and um and mausoleums being uh, permanent but there's something about this particular individual who is seen by you know most people as an architect or kind of how he represents himself as an architect to to the broader population that starts to caricature what it is that we actually do so him being out there yeah it draws attention and it can start a conversation but then we're left with this you know these these buildings that I don't know if they're going to be good or if they're going to be bad, but ultimately someone's left with this on a city block that's going to be taking up this space. And I wonder is that a, way, a good way to start a conversation? Is to deal with a a, a, ba- a building designed by someone who isn't an architect who makes us then you know further marginalizes us and has we have to deal with the repercussions of his his kind of um, his his flightful fancy of practicing as a quote unquote architect. I mean, I do think that the risk of further marginalization is a really good, is a very real one. Um, the the the, uh, the endorsement I made last week, I referred to this Rory Hyde article um, on failed architecture. One of the examples he gave in that article was that in Australia, I think, I, don't, I want to say it was the prime minister, but I don't remember exactly who it was. Someone very high up in government in Australia said, well, you know, the architects are really good at knowing which appliances should go in your kitchen, but beyond that, they don't do much. And if that really is the attitude people have towards us, that we're essentially decorators, then yeah, I don't want Kareem modeling and, you know, being an architect if that's what it causes people to think about us, about how we think about the world and about what we do and what our value is. I totally agree. I mean, I personally, it doesn't bother me what Kareem Rashid 
does. But when he makes comments that reduce the value of, of the industry and what architects do for the public, you know, I think that's a that's a big problem at, that anyone in his position should take more responsibility for. Yeah, agreed. All right. So um, I think we should start wrapping this up. Anybody have any uh, any endorsements this week? I, I really uh, rather like the piece about Jimenez Lai. Um, that's starting to, you know, obviously build up collective steam around uh, his work. And and again, comment trolls are out on the uh, on the interwebs blasting it. So I'm really interested in, in, in that. I'm really looking forward. I thought it was so interesting that the first <laughs> comment, which uh, referring back to the comment trolls, was posted in the same minute that the article yeah. was posted. Yeah, <laughs> the moment it went up. Speed reading trolls. I yeah. mean, it, it's kind of it's kind of great. I mean, that's that was that was like almost like a gift from the trolls. You know, it's like <laughs> like look, here's proof that we did not read any of this article, yeah. and we are just here to take a shit on. <laughs> so that. Um, is what I'm looking at at Arconnect right now. Um, there's a, a lot of things happening in the Twin Cities with regard to architecture, a lot of um, short listing of projects dealing with parks along the uh, Mississippi, uh, along the river. And um, some redesign of, um, which I'm going to post these to the website, the uh, Nic- uh, the Nicolette Mall redesign with, uh, I think, Julie Snow's office was uh, particularly interesting to me. So those are the things I'm kind of looking at right now. Cool. I wanted to, to I re- referenced it earlier, but Nick Carotti's um, article posted the fact that one in 30 U.S. children right now is homeless or has been homeless at some point in the last year. That's just appalling, you guys. We've all got to do better. I mean, <laughs> that, that uh, and so I'll read more into that and try to figure out a little bit more about how to discuss that better. But the other thing, just to, to, to come up to a more optimistic level, there's a, um, you just a uh, today, an article with Farshid Musavi. Am I pronouncing that right? There's an article in The Guardian about her, and she is so optimistic in it. And she's saying, you know, architecture does make a difference in the world. Let's talk about what kind of difference that is. And let's let's share ideas because we can't not share things anymore in the world of the internet. So let's share ideas and let's all, you know, get out there and do good work. It just seemed like a really optimistic interview. So I wanted to make sure to point that out as opposed to the comment trolls who like to just come on and shit on everything yeah that's <laughs> yeah such a such a refreshing comment yeah. to hear <laughs> i would like simply to endorse uh it's not even a piece of writing so much it's just an image uh, orhan posted a photo taken um in somewhere in glendale california i believe um of a someone who had hacked into whatever traffic <laughs> network uh posts the messages on temporary electronic um signboards that they put up in like traffic scenarios to alert people as to upcoming accidents or such and it just says "fuck GPD Part Two. Um, and it's and I'm, <laughs> I'm taking good. that to mean "fuck the Glendale Police Department." Um, I don't know if there's a Part One or maybe PT PT Two stands for something else, but I love stuff like this. I think it's hilarious. Um, it's also on a night. The shot is the photograph is taken at night on a pretty empty street, so I can imagine that that's just sitting there for a really long time and barely being seen by or being seen by not very many people, but. Also, now many more that Orhan take a, took a photo of it and has, photo, and has posted it. So I thought that was just hilarious. And um, I encourage everyone to be on the lookout for any other potential like hacks on their own uh, city traffic <laughs> alert systems. Yeah, I, you know, uh, I, I like that, I, that idea of uh, calling, calling out for submissions for potential picks of the week. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to dicks of the week, you know, we're, we're looking for both right now. Okay, but no dick picks of the week because that's not. No, no, no. <laughs> Thank you, Amelia. 
one plus one does not necessarily <laughs> equal two. But I like that Orhan also noted this, these other like moments of unexpected poetry. Like <laughs> he posted another photo in the comments of just one that's totally normal. It says expect delays. And it's just a beautiful <laughs> statement to be put in the middle of traffic to, uh, to be reminded of when you're already harshly like stopping and going. Yeah. So <laughs> very existential <laughs> moment. <laughs> yes. That's great. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on an endorsement this week. It has nothing to do with uh, what's going on this week. I just have nothing to say right now. So <laughs> Thanks, Paul. We appreciate your honor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, a whole lot of stuff has gone up recently, so we'll have more to talk about next week. Definitely. Definitely. And we are recording this episode a little earlier than normal this week. So um, I think we're all just kind of getting back from the weekend and trying to get into the week. So as always, we're at, uh, you know, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Send us uh, suggestions, feedback, whatever to, uh, to us on Twitter using hashtag Arconnect Sessions. We also have the, uh, the phone line, which, um, Amelia, do you have that number? <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, just, I was searching for it and you got to it too fast. Um, the number is uh, a Google Voice number, so you can leave a message up until two minutes long. That is uh, 213-784-7421, and you may get a chance to have that your message played on the show. Yeah. Well, thanks to everybody who's, who's made it this far, and thanks to you guys for uh, joining the conversation. Until next week. It's always good to talk to you guys. Always good to talk to you too. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks guys. Have a good week. Bye. 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 Bye everyone.